This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Ruth Reeder, and you're listening to Fast Break, a look at some of the most innovative ideas that bring about social change. This week, we'll dive into what the COVID-19 vaccine developments could really mean for the future, and then we'll find out what therapists are doing to treat their patients amid the pandemic. This is your Fast Break. First Pfizer, then Moderna, and most recently AstraZeneca. The announcements for a COVID-19 vaccine have created a lot of excitement, especially when infection rates have skyrocketed and the daily death toll has reached over 2,000 in the U.S. But how this news will actually affect us remains to be seen. Earlier this month, I called up Dr. Gregory Poland, who is head of the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic. He's also editor-in-chief of the medical journal Vaccine. We talked about Pfizer's announcement that its COVID vaccine had a 90% efficacy rate. Many of the points he raises are good for thinking about vaccine news in general. Yeah, I mean, my initial reaction is this. Very encouraging and exciting results, but this is the earliest, smallest sliver of the outcomes we need to know. You know, let's see the data so that we can actually see the limitations of this. The reason I say, you know, temper our enthusiasm here is that they had several primary endpoints. Protection against mild disease in people without prior infection. We know nothing about people who had prior infection. Their secondary endpoint is protection against severe COVID infection with or without prior infection. We know nothing about that. We only know about data in the seven days following a second dose. They have multiple endpoints, month one, six, 12, and 24. So we know nothing about the durability of that. We know nothing because they didn't study it about children, pregnant women, highly immunocompromised individuals, the oldest of the old, and probably important subgroups. For example, the Native American population has been the hardest hit. I doubt they had very many Native Americans. I could be wrong, but we don't have a publication, so I can't tell. We know only a modicum of short-term safety. We know nothing of long-term safety. And there's one important caveat that I'm just shocked. I seem to be the only one who has thought of this. We don't know what the efficacy will be when masks are off and we're not distanced. And that could be a major caveat. The other caveats are this is an airplane being flown while we're building it. This is not a static situation. This is a dynamic situation. We have now reached exponentiality. Exponentiality cannot be controlled. We are now past that. We blew it. What that means is that the only way to control this is something changes with the virus. That's up to the virus. We put into place, as other countries are, and even some states in the U.S. now, mandatory and enforced masking with closing down of high-risk you know, venues, or a highly efficacious vaccine that very high numbers of America take. This is, this is a really critical issue. 
the background to some of these concerns is what I published months ago in an article called The Tortoise and the Hare in SARS-CoV-2 Vaccine Development. These are vaccines that use the genetic code for the spike protein of one strain. While we're doing all of this, the virus is changing. Article came out, uh, what, a week and a half ago, showing two new strains in Europe, 20A EU1 and EU2, which are now accounting for 40 to 70% of the cases in a number of countries in Europe. Will this vaccine be effective against this? One of the variants has a mutation very close to the receptor binding domain. So these will be important questions that we watch. Remember that normally, if you have young children, the the chickenpox vaccine took 20 years. When you're talking about 7 to 20 years, you learn an awful lot about that vaccine before it's licensed. We don't know what we don't know here. Back in August, Pfizer announced that its vaccine showed some efficacy in older adults, which is really welcome news because the people who are most affected by COVID-19 or have some of the worst effects tend to be older. So I asked Dr. Poland what he thought about that. But let's see the data. How old? How many old? You know, again, the other thing is this is mild to moderate disease. What if it protects you against that but not complications or death or severe disease or the ability to continue transmitting the disease or maternal fetal complications or a whole list of things? These are all... How would I put it? If you think of the universe of COVID vaccines for this vaccine as a pie, we're being served up a very slim sliver of that pie. Let's see the rest of the pie. I also wanted to get his take on alternative vaccine options. There are existing vaccines like measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine, and Bacillus calmet guerin, or BCG. Past research says these vaccines can boost one's overall immune system. Some researchers have been trying to explore whether there are lower COVID-19 infection rates or lower mortality rates among people who have gotten these vaccines. Yeah, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. What they're appealing to is the idea of trained innate immunity. In other words, the idea is give something, rev up the immune system, and you've added some protection. Well, that's not been proven. These are ecological studies. There's been no randomized controlled trial. If that effect were true, for how long and in whom? And, oh, by the way, we already use MMR vaccine at very high rates in this country, and we have one of the highest infection rates. So is this really making sense? Something that Dr. Poland mentioned on our call is that while these initial efficacy rates are encouraging, it may take a few generations to get the vaccine right. So, you know, again, really exciting, really encouraging news, but we have to temper that enthusiasm with seeing the whole story. You'd think people would learn this. I mean, look at all the press around hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. That was a disaster. People forgot all of the scientific lessons and the scientific method that leads long-term to the right results. We can't let that keep happening. I'm not equating this with hydroxychloroquine. I'm just saying initial enthusiasm in science is never the full story. Um, You know, I don't wish anything bad on this vaccine. I want it to be a winner. But you just don't know that. Our knowledge of this vaccine is, in a sense, weak-souled. 
you know, I mean, okay, nine months times four weeks, but sure. we've sold. We've been making influenza vaccine for 70 to 80 years. And as you and I speak, clinical trials of new influenza vaccines are taking place. So what leads us to think that in nine months, we got this nailed? So I know I sound like Debbie Downer, but I'm, I'm frustrated with even my scientific peers who, in their enthusiasm, and we all want good news, me too, and I, I have nothing you know, against this vaccine, but in our enthusiasm, let us not forget the scientific method and hard-learned lessons from the past. This is an exciting and encouraging, but preliminary, very early, very circumscribed piece of data. Much, much more needs to be learned. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused everyone's plans to change, including therapists. Not only have they been forced to move their practices online, but they've also had to adjust to changes Americans are making to their living situations. About a fifth of Americans have either moved or know somebody who moved because of the virus. That has thrown therapy practices into chaos as they try to keep track of where their clients are living and whether they can legally counsel them. So I had a client who is said she was in New York, and one of the first times I met with her, I see a bunch of trees behind her, and I'm thinking, oh, she must be in Central Park. And I said, where, where are you? And she said, I'm in Connecticut. Larissa Golub is a licensed therapist based in New York. She said her heart sank when she heard this. I said, you know I can't meet with you when you're out of state. Different states have different laws, but typically therapists have to practice and see clients in the state where they are licensed. Because of the pandemic, some states have loosened restrictions on practicing across state lines, while others have sped up licensing processes to help therapists become compliant. But what was meant to simplify access to mental health care has actually made the landscape a lot more confusing. During an already complicated pandemic, therapists have been forced to keep up with ever-changing local ordinances or stop seeing their patients altogether. <laughs> but I, they're not comfortable seeing you if you're going back and forth because it can change suddenly. Right? And then where are we? This change in telehealth regulations has revived a conversation about national licensing, not just for therapists, but for doctors in general. On the pro side, it would allow health professionals to see their patients across state lines. It would also open up more healthcare options for people who live in remote areas where they don't have access to therapists or other kinds of specialists. But the biggest barrier to a national license is that there's no existing body at the federal level to oversee the process. It's typically handled state by state. As a stopgap, some therapists are considering getting licensed in multiple states so they can continue caring for their roving patients. You know, as long as they say that they want to keep working with me, for me, it's worth it to just apply for the licensure in that state and do what I need to do to keep those clients and to continue care. That's Andrew Schwem. He's a therapist who is part of Alma, a therapy community and platform that went entirely online after COVID hit. He practices in New York City, but many of his patients have moved back to Connecticut and Washington, D.C. and New Jersey to be with their families. He says he doesn't want to stop seeing his patients because having to transfer care in the middle of a pandemic is understandably really difficult. Um, and I would hate to put them through that. It wouldn't be ethical. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be professional mm -hmm. or ethical on my side. And I have to look out for the client's best interest. That's my number one priority. Schwem is also concerned that a national license would make it a lot easier for insurance companies to only work with providers in areas where there's a lower cost of living. 
Health insurance companies are often looking for the most cost-effective services, what will save them money. And so if there is a national license, if everybody is licensed the same, they would obviously be inclined to work with service providers that offer cheaper rates. And so that's where the problem comes in is the fear that the insurance companies will try to cut costs and cut corners because they can say that they're providing care, but what is level of care really? For now, a national license seems like a far-off possibility. Some states have already extended the original end date for their rolled-back licensing rules, but these softened requirements are not likely to last. What does that mean for patients on the move? You may need to find a new therapist. That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ruth Reader.